Well, thank you very much, Pastor. This is my first trip to Martinsdale, uh, Iowa. I've never been here before, and I'm really impressed with the hospitality and the warmth, re warm reception we've received this weekend. We've had a wonderful time yesterday, actually Friday night when we started the conference, and then yesterday we kind of had an interlude with a emphasis upon marriage, and then we concluded the conference last evening. And so I have a chance to stay over just a little bit extra with you here on Sunday and spend a little bit of time with you, and I've so far, we've enjoyed the weekend a whole lot. I'm very grateful for your pastor and his wife, the opportunity to meet them. I've heard many good things about you from Jeremy in the past, and Jeremy was a part of our, Jeremy and Serena were a part of our fellowship group. In fact, I knew Jeremy and Serena before they got married. So if you want any stories, I'll tell you the, some of their stories and background for 10 bucks a piece. Um, no, I'm just... <laughs> Uh, it's great, and uh, I've seen uh, Jeremy just grow and mature into a pastor, and I'm so grateful that he's there here serving with your pastor and uh, the work that you guys are doing here in uh, Martinsdale. Please take your Bible, would you please, and let's go over to Galatians chapter 6. That's what we're interested in this morning, and we want to focus on the issue of biblical restoration. Biblical Restoration, Galatians chapter 6. And we're the, really the focus of our message is verse 1, even though we're going to take a look at some of the verses preceding it. But verse 1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted." One of the prevalent attitudes among a lot of Christians today is similar to that of Cain's. Am I my brother's keeper? You remember when Cain said that in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9? It was his way to avoid responsibility for his very selfish and sinful actions when God came to confront him. And eventually God says to him, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. And uh, in other words, God knew exactly what Cain had done, and he confronts Cain and get, in order to get Cain to confess what he had done, but Cain never does that. I remember a story some time ago about the man, the first man to ever climb the summit of Mount Everest, which proved to be a very dangerous adventure. His name was Sir Edmund Hillary. And after scaling the mountain, Hillary lost his footing on the way down, but his Serpa guide, a guy by the name of Tenzing Norgay, held the line taut and kept Hillary from falling to a very tragic death. Later on at the foot of the mountain, the world press was assembled because this is the first time that this thing had ever been done, and they wanted to interview the first guy to ever ascend Mount Everest. And of course, all attention was turned towards his guide, his Serpa guide, Tenzing Norgay. But Tenzing Norgay would refuse all special credit for saving Hillary's life. And he kept telling the press, listen, that's what mountain climbers do. They always help one another. And he refused any kind of special recognition because that's what we do. We always help one another. Now, I believe that that's one of the critical tests of Christianity in our contemporary culture today. A, a test that will make a church distinctive is your willingness to help other Christians who have become disabled and discouraged because of sin. Why? Because I want to suggest to you that's what Christians do. They always help one another. That's what they do. Restoration of other believers really is a responsibility we share as Christians. Now, you'll notice that Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 was not written to pastors, and it was not written to elders of the church, and it wasn't written to deacons in the church. It was written to the entire church at Galatia. That means you and me. So it has applications to all of us. It was given to you... And this brings up three very critical questions. Let's take a look at these if we can. If I can get this to go, we will.
Well, maybe we won't, or maybe after a little bit we will. <laughs> so, oh, there it went. Okay, good. There we go. All right, the first question is, what is your responsibility to the people that you rub shoulders with every day? I want you to think about that for a moment. Especially those that you rub shoulder with around the church. It's clear from Galatians 6.1 that you that God defined you as having a responsibility to help another believer. But in reality, what does that mean? What does that mean? How do you help a fellow Christian without becoming an intrusive busybody? Well, the Apostle Paul warns about Christians who are busybodies. He talks about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1. We're not supposed to be busybodies. He also talks about that in uh, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 13. He warns about Christians becoming busybodies in other people's lives. So how in the world can you help another Christian and help somebody that's struggling with a problem without becoming a busybody? How is that possible? What is behind? What, what's really meant by Galatians 6.1? Which brings us to another question. What do you do when you realize that your friend is struggling with a sin? Now, it's one thing to allow somebody with the help of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to work on their own personal problems. I think in Christianity, we need to give people wide berth to do that kind of thing. But when you see a friend who is repeatedly struggling with the same temptation and the same sin and never seems to have victory over that sin, then where do you define your responsibility? That's a critical question, don't you think? What is my responsibility when I see that thing going on? Do I just let them go into self-destruct mode? How do I deal with that particular issue? One of my good friends commented, commented on Galatians chapter 2. He says, um, it is important to make a distinction between rank heretics and errant Christians. Rank heretics need strong doctrinal rebuke and sometimes really removal from the church. Errant Christians need restoration. So what do you do when you encounter a Christian that's really been hobbled by a sin? Well, some people will arrogantly attack them and criticize them. How could you do that, they would say. I would never do that. And they would have a very pious attitude towards them. Other people are going to falsely accuse them. What are the parameters? We're asking a question. What are the parameters that God places around this admonition so that the Bible can have functional control over your relationships with other believers without you yourself falling into sin? Which really brings up a third question, and that's this. What are the dangers that you have to avoid when you seek to help another Christian? Are there dangers? I think that there are. So what are those dangers? And how do I avoid those particular dangers when I seek to help another believer in Christ? Now, that's a critical question um, because your basic motivation of helping another person may be a very good motivation. But even it can become an occasion for sin in your life. The world said, as long as a person has a good motivation, it doesn't matter what they do, we'll overlook the wrongs. But God says both the motivation as well as the method is important to him. Now, before we unpack Galatians 6.1, I think it would help you to understand the broader context of Paul's argument in Galatians. That'll help to provide some very good insight into why Paul says what he does here in Galatians 6.1. It's interesting. In our graduate program, I, I teach a class called hermeneutics. Some of you may say, Herman what? Hermeneutics, that is principles of biblical interpretation. And we spend an entire semester really drill, grilling the students on this. And one of our mantras in that particular class goes like this. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. I say to them, listen, I want you to dream that. I want you to wake up in the middle of the night and have nightmares about this. A text without a context is a proof text. Uh, <laughs> a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. That's what it is. So we want to do the same thing. We want to take a look just for a moment at the background of Paul's argument in the book of Galatians right up till we get to Galatians 6.1. That, again, will help you to understand why he says what he does. 
Now, one of the interesting things that we do as Christians is we kind of treat the Bible sometimes like a magical book of incantations. Like each individual verse stands alone with its particular meaning. My father and mother, uh, my father was a pastor. I grew up in a pastor's home. And one of his desires was to get his kids into the word of God every day, which was a great desire. Uh, but I can remember when I was a boy getting up in the morning, going down to the breakfast table, and right in the middle of the breakfast table was a little plastic loaf of bread, and it had little verse cards in it, in cardboard. You ever seen those? On the side of it, it said, Our Daily Bread, okay? It really should have said, Our Daily Crouton. That's what it should have said, <laughs> not Our Daily Bread. And so we would all take a little uh, verse out of the beginning of it. It's sort of like a... Um, Chinese fortune cookie type of endeavor and we'd all read our little verse in the morning and um, try to read something for our day into that particular verse. Now I understand the spirit and the motivation behind it. The spirit and motivation is to get his kids into the word of God and that was a great motivation. But that was a terrible way to do it because we would read all kinds of meaning in that verse that was never intended by the Bible. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. All right? And so we'd pull that little thing out and we'd have little tingles go up and down our, wow, that's my verse for today. This is what God ordained my verse for the day be. This is my little fo spiritual fortune cookie, my little spiritual vitamin that I take during the day to help me make it through the day and I can make it. Oh, no, no, no. No, that's not the way God intended his word to be understood. Chopped up in all individual verses. We used to have a guy that worked in our department with me. His name was Dr. Stuart Scott. And Dr. Stuart Scott came to me one day, bursted into my office. He said, John, you got to see this. You got to see this. And he pointed to a little Christian calendar that somebody had given them that they had bought at a local Christian bookstore. And on each day of the calendar, they had a Bible verse. And the Bible verse for that particular day said this, fall down and worship me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. That was the words of Satan to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Somebody putting that verse thing together thought that that individual verse stood by itself and they put it on that little verse. Here they're quoting the words of Satan out of the Bible. A text without a context is a pretext for a what? Proof text. That's exactly what it is. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. So you can read all kinds of meaning into an individual verse that was never intended to be that way. Uh, God never intended his Bible to be used that way. It was given to us within a flow of thought, and we've got to understand that particular flow of thought in order to rightly interpret that verse. What's going on in that flow of thought? When you excerpt verses from the Bible and read any kind of meaning into that particular verse, that's the way cults get started. Cults use the Bible, but they excerpt and draw into the Bible anything that they want. In fact, you can make the Bible say almost anything. You heard about the guy who decided to do the hunt and search method for the devotions. He said, okay, God, what I want to do is I want to do what your word tells me to do today. And that's what I'm going to do. So he closed his eyes and he opened his Bible and he let it fall open. And he put his finger down and it says this, Judas went out and hung himself. Well, that can't be right. Lord, you've got to be wrong here. Let me see. Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> that can't be right, Lord. All right. That's the hunt and peck method. That's when we treat the Bible like it's a magical textbook. And it's like these little verses stand alone by themselves. And they're not intended to do that. They're a part of a larger argument. We become cultish when we use the Bible that way. No, no, no. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. So, lest we pull Galatians 6.1 out of context, let's take a look at what this particular verse means. What does it mean within its broader context? Now, one of the things that we need to look at is the fact 
that Galatians, you see, was written to believers who were being exhorted to believe a false gospel of righteousness, a gospel by the human works of the Mosaic law. This was big. This is the Judaizers that had come into the church there, Galatia. And they were being persuaded, these Galatian Christians, to replace faith with certain practices of the law. They were told that that's what God desired. He desired observance of certain aspects of the Mosaic law in order for them to be considered righteous before him. And the emphasis of this false gospel now was upon personal deeds of righteousness in order to please God. Personal deeds of righteousness in order to please God. Now, what did that include? Well, that included circumcision, laws of cleanliness, the observance of certain ceremonial days and months and seasons and years. It included all that. In fact, take your Bible just for a moment. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You can see this little occasion where Paul had to actually stand up and rebuke Peter. Galatians 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Verse 5, But we did not yield in into subjection to them uh, for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. And Paul has told earlier about the fact that he even had to stand up and rebuke the apostle Peter for acting as if circumcision meant something. Let's go over to, or drop down to verse 12, same chapter. It says, for prior to coming, certain men from James... Um, he used to eat, that is speaking of Peter, with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And this is where Paul had to stand up and rebuke him as a result of that. Uh, let's jump over to chapter 4 and verse 10. You can see an example of this. For you observe days and months and seasons and years. Paul says, verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. So they were trying to impose certain aspects of the Mosaic law on those New Testament believers. All the efforts... All these human efforts to please God for personal salvation negated salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And it introduced into Christianity a performance-based gospel. Do you hear me? It introduced into Christianity a performance-based gospel. It was a gospel that emphasized outward behavioral function. In this false gospel, stress was laid upon personal achievement, individual accomplishment, self-reliant performance, why these Galatians would have been great Americans. That's what we pride ourselves in. Personal achievement, individual accomplishment, self-reliance. Been great. Christianity was beginning to morph from a religion of humble, forgiven sinners to self-sufficient achievers. Now, now listen carefully. This not only affected how a person understood becoming a Christian, it also had a huge effect on how Christians functioned in the church and how they treated one another. How did they treat one another? Well, let's take a look at the immediate context for a moment. So let's go over to Galatians chapter 5. Not only had the Judaizers who had come into Galatian church discredited the apostleship of Paul, but they had introduced a destructive gospel of behavioral performance. Paul understood the antidote. The antidote to this was a clear defense of his apostleship as ordained by God and accepted by the other apostles and a careful explanation of the unmerited grace of Jesus Christ in salvation. Now, this has huge implications, not only to how a person becomes a Christian, but also how the Christian functions with other believers. 
Sometimes we hear a lot about the fact that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. But we hear very little about the fact that not only are we saved by grace, but we live by grace. That's the part that oftentimes is neglected. I really like what Jerry Bridges says in his book, Transforming Grace, when he makes the statement, Christians, Christians should preach the gospel of grace to themselves every day, end of quote. Did you hear that? Christians should preach the gospel of grace to themselves every day. Why? Because we're saved by grace, right? But we forget that we also live in grace. We're saved by grace, but we also live in grace. A person who lives by grace is a person that Galatians 5 says pleases the spirit in contrast to pleasing the flesh in everything that they do in life. This is what Galatians 5 is all about. In fact, I want you to take a look at this. What does pleasing the spirit mean? Go to Galatians 5.17, where he says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, what does it mean to please the spirit? What does that mean? Well, back up in verse 6, one of the things that we learn about it is that you live by faith. Verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You live by faith. And when you live by faith, you are doing two things. First, you live with full trust in the work of Jesus Christ, who has made payment for your sin. It is a worry-free life of grace. But secondly... You also are freed from your personal efforts, that is, to gain and maintain your salvation, in order to practice love. That's what the final words of this verse says. It is faith working through love. It is the type of faith that naturally expresses itself in love. Now, how is this love manifested? Let's look at verse 13. We find out that when we are living by the Spirit to please the Spirit, you love by serving. Verse 13, he says, For you are called the freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. So this new freedom in Christian living, he says, presents some dangers. Christian liberty sometimes opens the door and lust walks through. Your liberty can easily become a license to sin or an opportunity for the flesh. Now, the way that you keep this from happening is the practice of selfless love with others. And how does the human heart really ultimately become selfless? Well, verse 18 says that we're led by the Spirit. Now, the word led does not mean that the Holy Spirit is speaking in the back of your head or in the back of your mind. That's schizophrenia. All right? It doesn't mean that. What that means is the word led there has the idea of motivated. You're motivated by the spirit and spiritual things. You're not motivated by fleshly things or by things of the flesh or by meritorious effort, work in order to please God. You're motivated by the spirit. Because the flesh with all of its laws seeks to benefit itself, but the spirit always seeks in love to benefit others. It is love in practice. In fact, if I were to ask you the question, what is the love chapter of the Bible? I think most Christians would say, oh, I know what that is. That's 1 Corinthians 13. Can I suggest to you that actually Galatians 5 is the love chapter of the Bible? The entire theme of Galatians 5 has to do with Christian love. Notice, we saw it in verse 6, but faith working through love. Then look at verse 14. 
or verse 13, it's through love that you serve one another. Verse 14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Then skip down to verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. Now let me give you a little clue into this. You notice how the fruit of the spirit, the word fruit is singular, it's not plural. It's not talking about fruits of the spirit. Sometimes when we see Sunday school material and Sunday school lessons, it talks about the fruits, plural, the spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches fruit, one fruit of the spirit. What is the one fruit of the spirit? Well, you've got to understand the Semitic mind. If they had a list of things that they wanted to communicate to you, they would always put the broadest thing or the most general thing at the top of that list. You can see this in the qualification for overseers in the church in 1 Timothy 3. What are the qualifications? There's a whole list of them, but at the very top of the list is that person must be above reproach. Now, you wouldn't know what that means unless you read the rest of the list. Why? Because everything underneath it describes aspects of what it means to be above reproach. You can see the second, same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. What are the last days going to be like? And there's a whole list of characteristics of what the last days are going to be like. But what's the, what's the thing at the top of the list that everything else underneath describes aspects of? Answer, men will be self-lovers. And as a result of that, they'll be boastful because they self-love. They'll be disobedient to parents because they love themselves. They will be prideful because they love themselves. And the whole list goes on and on and on and on and on. <clears throat> That's the way the Semitic mind works. When you had a list of things, you put the broadest, most general thing at the top, the thing that characterizes the rest of the list at the top. Now, that isn't true with every single list that we have in the Bible, but the majority of lists that we have in the Bible, that's the way it's arranged. Same thing's true with the fruit singular of the Spirit. What fruit is the Apostle Paul talking about? The answer is love. It's love. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Then everything else underneath that is characteristic of that love. For example, joy is love exhilarated. Peace is love at rest. Long-suffering is love on trial. Gentleness is love with interpersonal tenderness. Goodness is love and active care. Faith is love with confident endurance. Meekness is love without personal rights. Temperance is love with restraint. So you get this idea that everything under that particular list modifies what it really means to love one another because that is the theme of Galatians 5. Now, look at verse 26. He says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Earlier, he had said, um, in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. A legalistic, performance-based Christianity turns into a criticism of other people. That's where biting and devouring one another happens. It is a performance-based living out of the Christian life that becomes a critical mindset in the minds of Christians, and it is an antithetical to the concept of love. In fact, the concept of Christian love is a direct outgrowth of understanding that we live by grace. Wow. We live by grace. And that forms in us a loving attitude because you see, we're all in the same boat. And the boat has a hole in the bottom of it and we're sinking. That boat is called depravity. And but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has come along and lifted us together out of that boat. But we've all been in the same boat. Rather than a performance-based Christianity that leads to a critical lifestyle where Christians are biting and devouring one another, boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, there is this lifestyle of grace. Nothing erodes the unity of Christian fellowship more than people who are seeking their own passions. Seeking their own spiritual advancement. 
The liberty that you enjoy that's a result of the grace of Jesus Christ can quickly be replaced with a sense of self-sufficiency. And in Galatians 5, Paul deals with the extremes that he observes among Christians in Galatia. On the one hand, there is this self-centered legalism that's imported into the church by Judaizers that fed their pride. And on the other hand, the license that the Galatian believers tended to move towards in rejecting legalism by indulging the flesh with their freedom in Christ, which fed their passions. In fact, he talks about what it means to please the flesh there in Galatians 5. And there's three things here that are listed in verse 26. You live a self-satisfied life, and that's the reason why you become boastful. Performance-based Christianity breeds a miserable spirit of individualism. Look at me and look what I've done, not look at Christ and look what he's done. Wow. Like a rubber duck factory, legalism produces arrogant Christians that all quack the same way. They're very, very critical of one another. They believe that they're self-important and they're smug about their abilities and their accomplishments in life, especially their religious life. Look at me, I go to church on Sunday. <gasps> Isn't that great? Hmm. Really? In fact, they are so confident they brag about themselves with any good re- without any good reason. Now, I want to make it clear that modern Christians' assumptions about legalism are oftentimes false. Anyone who defends a doctrine is often defined as being legalistic. If that's true, then the Apostle Paul is guilty of legalism in Galatians 2. Or, there are many Christians who think that anyone who lives by a law is legalistic or expects others to live by biblical commands is legalistic. Well, if that's true, then... Paul is certainly wrong in Galatians 6, 2, because he says, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. No, that's not legalism. Those misunderstandings reveal a serious ignorance of the gospel. Galatians clearly demonstrates that genuine legalism is adding performance standards to simple faith and trust in Christ alone. That's what legalism is. And you and I cannot add anything to what Christ has already done, right? In order to be genuine Christian and even order to live the Christian life, it is a grace-enabled life. But once a Christian, there are non-Mosaic New Covenant commands that must be followed. Now, number two, we also love to show off and challenge others, according to verse 26. (coughs) Have you ever met Christians who love to criticize other Christians? Now, I know that doesn't happen in this church at all, but there are churches out there that that happens to where Christians criticize other Christians. They can be very creative and stinging in their criticism. And when you look at the sum total of their lives or ministry, you realize they really have nothing positive to add to Christianity at all. Their spirit, their spiritual gift is one of slicing and dicing other believers. And when you really believe that in your life, and you think you're spiritual hot stuff, then you feel free to challenge the masses of inferior people around you. The root idea of the participle here in verse 26 means to call forth. So to call forth others in a challenging way. In the middle voice, as it is here, it means to provoke or to irritate other people. And in context, a person like this is so proud of their self-efforts that they dare others to compare themselves with them. And on occasion when that happens, and they discover that the other person is actually more religiously fastidious than they are, then their heart swells in jealousy. So that brings us to our third area. You're led by selfish desires and ultimately envy. People who profess to be Christians and attempt to influence others to follow their legalism are driven by ecclesiastical envy. When you're this way, you can't stand to have anyone look better than you. And if and when they do, you become intensely jealous. Uh, You can see how self-performance-oriented righteousness is. And that's exactly the type of Christianity that the Judaizers had introduced to Galatia. Instead, we're called upon in verse 14, to love others as ourselves. That means the Bible always assumes that we love ourselves an awful lot 
and that we need to love others with the same degree of passion that we already love ourselves. Wow. Now, that's my introduction. Let's get to Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1, the Apostle Paul now sets up a hypothetical case study here in this verse. Instead of seeking to please the flesh with its selfish pursuits of righteousness, you seek to please the spirit with selfless pursuits of righteousness. How? By active practice of restoration. The fundamental meaning of the word restore is to put a thing in appropriate condition, to establish it, to set it up, to equip it, to arrange it, prepare it, mend it. In the secular Greek, it's used for setting broken bones. In the New Testament Greek, it's the same word that's used to speak of mending broken fishing nets. And what I want to do is look at four aspects the Apostle Paul points out in this one verse. I want to talk about the cause, the character, the condition, and the caution. Four things. What's the cause behind this? If you're going to help to restore another believer, what's the cause? The cause is the person must be caught in a trespass. Caught here does not mean that you snoop around like Sherlock Holmes with a large magnifying glass trying to catch another Christian in sin. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not where you catch somebody, you're snooping around the church and you find somebody, aha, caught you in a sin. No, no, no. That's not what caught means. The word caught here is a word that means that a, this person has become overwhelmed in a sin. They become overwhelmed in a sin. Um, it means that a person has been trying to get away from this particular sin, and you observe that it has caught up to them. It's captured them. Uh, they have been overtaken. Prolumbano is the Greek term, or were, was aware or unaware of its approach, and, and it surprised them when it all of a sudden overwhelmed them. So this person must be caught in sin, and this person is not living according to the truth. That's what the word trespass means. They're not living according to the truth. In other words, they've taken a false step, a sin, a transgression. It's actually a word that was used in Matthew 6.15 and Ephesians 1.7 to refer to serious offenses against both God and man. And even though the verse says any trespass, the context and the terms here used here means any sin that has overwhelmed a person and they can't seem to get out of it. It doesn't mean just any sin that you observe another person doing. Otherwise, we would all become busybodies. This is a person that in their normal Christian walk in life they've fallen into the quicksand of sin. And they're struggling. The more they struggle, the deeper they sink. It's that kind of a person. They've become overwhelmed with it. Secondly, what's the character? He says, you who are spiritual. Now, this is not saying that there's such a thing as two classes of Christians who are going to heaven. One, the unspiritual, perpetually carnal Christian. The other one is the spiritually righteous person. No, Given the argument of Galatians 5, it's saying that this is the person who is walking by the Spirit, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in love, bearing his or her own earthly burdens and resisting fleshly desires to be performance-oriented in their Christianity. The opposite is the person who is presently following the desires and deeds of the flesh and try to bring Christians under a heavy bondage of performance. So, the idea here is you must not be living according to the flesh. If you know you have a sin problem that perpetually plagues you and you have not seen any change in your, in your particular life, then you're not the one who should be coming along another believer to help restore them. God will use someone else. If you define your Christianity by man-made pharisaical standards, you're not spiritual either. Those are standards that have an appeal to the flesh, but they're really worthless in achieving what God wants outside of Christ. Furthermore, your life then should be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. It should be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. 
Only when you have the other person's welfare first and foremost in your mind out of love, not out of a desire to show them that you're better than they are. No, no, no. That's the flesh speaking. That's pleasing the flesh, not pleasing the spirit. Only when you have the other person's welfare first and foremost in your mind and not your own desires, then are you ready to help them. That's the reason why the fruit of the spirit is singular. Thirdly, what's the condition? The condition is in the spirit of gentleness. Wow, that's such a key thing. So let's say you're, you consider yourself to be a person who is living according to the spirit. You're a spiritual person. Paul adds this qualification, and it's one key aspect, interesting, that's a part of the fruit of the spirit. That is this issue of gentleness. Um, that's the beginning of verse 23. Gentleness is an aspect of the fruit of the spirit. So, um, so what does it mean? Well, it does not mean weakness because its basis is love. It doesn't mean weakness. There are many who think that gentleness implies weakness. The opposite is true. Gentleness actually is a characteristic that resists the temptation of being harsh and demanding, and it enables you to correct another person without being arrogant or condescending. If you're an opinionated and judgmental person, you're not a gentle person. You're not a good one to help to restore another person. So this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit keeps a person from using truth like a sledgehammer that beats another person into the ground with the truth. What does it mean? It means to be pleasant or kindly. That's what it means, to be pleasant or kindly. In the secular Greek, the root of this word was used to speak of mild food, not spicy food. Um, tame animals, uh, not wild animals. Gentle, pleasant people, not people who are out of control. Paul uses this word to speak of the meekness of Christ, not coming from weakness because its basis was love in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1 and 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 21. Also, in 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul says that correcting an opponent in gentleness may lead to his salvation. Likewise, when you help to restore another person, a brother or sister in Christ, you must do so almost the way that an intensive care nurse would exercise extra special care in love. We have twin boys. They were born premature. When they were born premature, they were in the, in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit of the hospital for a few weeks. You should have seen my hospital bill at the end of that. That was 22 years ago, and it was $1,000 a day per baby. All right, that didn't include the doctor's fees and all the other stuff. They went, now it's much more than that. But I had a huge hospital bill. But I used to watch those intensive care nurses in the neonatal intensive care unit of the hospital take care of those little teeny preemie babies and watch the, the carefulness and the gentleness they dealt with those babies. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Galatians 6, 1, when another believer is hobbled by sin or sinking in the quagmire of sin, you've got to come alongside like an intensive care nurse to help that person. That's what it needs. It means to be pleasant and kindly. Fourthly, not only that, but the caution is looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now that's a vital caution. Why? Because your flesh is very clever and it's very deceptive. The implication here is you're not immune to falling into sin. You're not. Paul knew that the sinful flesh was not eradicated when it was crucified. The crucifixion of the flesh meant that the flesh had been finally judged by God. But the Christian would still have to deal with the leftover aspects of its reign in his heart. That's where Romans 6, 12 says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And Paul admonishes Christians in Galatians 6, 12 to make sure that righteousness reigns instead of sin reigning. When you go to deal with another person who's caught in a serious trespass, you must put a guard on your own desires and deeds. 
In counseling, in our graduate program, we stress this with our majors and our graduate students. As a counselee describes their particular problem or their particular sin, it's very easy to begin to relate to their struggle in your own life. And before you know it, you yourself find yourself weakening to its power. Why? Because you assume that sin would not have any pull on you. Why did you assume that? That's because you assumed a position of self-righteousness, not a position of grace where I'm just as susceptible to that sin as you are, but by God's grace, not my personal effort, I'm not in that sin. You see, the legalist is forced to totally, to focus totally on the wrongs of the other person, but the truly mature spiritual Christian has one eye on his or her own life and capacity to sin, and the other eye on helping the other person. What, what happens here? Well, your pride becomes your downfall. Legalism naturally spawns pride. Pride is the reason, and this is why verse 3 says what it says. Take a look at Galatians 6.3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, what does that do to your self-esteem? Anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing. You know what nothing is? Nothing is a great big zero with both ends removed. <laughs> Anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I love what Martin Luther says in his commentary on this verse. God made the world out of nothing, and as long as you are on nothing, he can do great things through you. That's great. God made the world out of nothing. As long as you are nothing, he can do great things through you. That's the idea behind Galatians 6.1. Why? Why? You, you say, why should I even get involved in this kind of a ministry among the body of Christ? The answer is because that's what Christians do. They help one another. Let me close with this. At a fundraising dinner for a school that serves learning disabled children, the father of one of the students delivered a speech that would never be forgotten by all who attended. After extolling the school and its dedicated staff, he questioned... What, when not interfered, interfered with by outside influences, everything that nature does is done with perfection. Yet my son Shay cannot learn things as other children do. He cannot understand things as other children do. Where is the natural order of things in my son? The audience was stilled by that query. The father continued, I believe that when a Childlike Shay comes into the world, an opportunity to realize true human love presents itself, and it comes in the way that other people treat that child. And then he told the following story. He said, Shay and his father had walked past a park where some boys that Shay knew were playing baseball, and Shay asked, Do you think that they let me play, Dad? Shay's father knew that most of the boys would not want someone like Shay on their team, but the father also understood that if the son were allowed to play, it would give him a much needed sense of belonging. Shay's father approached one of the boys in the field and asked if Shay could play. The boy looked around for guidance and getting none. He took matters into his own hands. He says, we're losing by six runs and the game is in the eighth inning. I guess he can be on our team and we'll try to put him to bat in the ninth inning. In the bottom of the ninth, Shay's team scored a few runs but was still behind by three. In the top of the ninth, Shay put on a glove, played in the outfield, and even though no hits came his way, he was obviously ecstatic just to be in the game and on the field, grinning from ear to ear and waving at his father over in the stands. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Shay's team scored again. Now with two outs on, the bases loaded, the potential winning run on the base, and Shay was scheduled to be next at bat. At this juncture, do they let Shay bat, give away their chance to win the game? Surprisingly, Shay was given the bat. Everyone knew that a hit was all but impossible because Shay didn't even know how to hold the bat, much less connect with the ball. However, as Shea stepped to the plate, the pitcher moved in a few steps to lob the ball real softly so Shea could at least be able to make contact. The first pitch came, and Shea swung clumsily and missed. The pitcher took another few steps closer, tossed the ball softly towards Shea. As the pitch came in, Shea swung at the ball and hit a slow ground ball right back to the pitcher. The pitcher picked up the ball of that soft grounder, could have easily thrown it to first base. Shea would have been out, and that would have been in the end of the game. Instead, 
The pitcher took the ball, turned, and threw the ball in a high arc into right field, far beyond the reach of the first baseman. Everybody started yelling, Shea, run to first, run to first. Never in his life had Shea ever made it to first base. He scampered down the base wide-eyed and startled. Everybody yelled, run to second, run to second. By the time Shea rounded first base, the right fielder had the ball. He could have thrown the ball to the second baseman for the tag, but he understood the pitcher's intentions and intentionally threw the ball on a high arc far over the third baseman's head. Shea ran towards second base as the runners ahead of him deliriously circled the bases towards home. Shea reached second base. The opposing st shortstop ran to him, turned him in the direction of third base, and shouted, run to third! <laughs> as Shea rounded third, the boys from both teams were screaming, Shea, run home, run home! Shea ran home, stepped on plate, was cheered as the hero who hit the grand slam and won the game for his team. That day said the father softly as tears came down his face. The boys from both teams helped to bring a piece of true love into this world. Now I am sure a church the size of Martinsdale Community Church that there are some shays in your congregation. Not physically, spiritually and either you're going to be very self-centered with your passion and your own pursuit of righteousness or you're going to realize that your life and your Christian life is a life of grace and you're going to come alongside those people with the word of God with a gentle caring touch of a, an intensive care nurse to help them and restore them what are you going to do you say, why? why should I do this? Because that's what Christians do. They help one another. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, you certainly, in the person of Jesus Christ, are an example of that. As Jesus said there in Matthew 20, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. May that be our heart. And I would pray, Father, that you would make a church like Martinsdale Community Church, a great church in this community, in this area, that is well known. When people think of that church, they'll be able to point that church and say, now that's a place where people help one another. That's a place where there's real answers from the Word of God. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.